brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Chatters, today we're taking another good hard look at the subtextual strangeness permeating from the secret cabal's conjured up culture. Because we've learned that many things the masses assume are just random events, in reality, are actually sometimes very well planned and timed rituals, but for what, we still don't always know. But when you unpack the announcements and missions of NASA, events on the political circus stage, the headlines zipping past our digital devices, and entertainment enchanted with the Hollywood wand, it feels like we're marinating in an esoteric soup of which we were never given the recipe. But if you pull on the threads, you'll find that highly potent places, numbers, names, and cycles seem to recur way more often than not. And surely, folks, this is no accident. And as you all know, one of my favorite detail-obsessed synchromystics is the great Chris Knowles of the Secret Sun blog. He's been here several times before, decoding everything from siren songs to space missions, and I'm sure that's a crossroads we will walk today as well. So welcome to the apocalypse. Mr. Knowles will be your guide. Please keep your lap bars down and arms inside the ride, Chris. Welcome back to the higher side. So great to be here. Looking forward to it. Always great to talk to you. Yes, I agree, man. I'm always pretty jazzed up to have you here on the heels of a new moon, no less. And I guess a pattern has kind of emerged where we tend to do this around the transition times from one year to the next. And I like that. You tend to give us a synchromistic state of the union, so to speak. And I was listening to our last one and you mentioned that 2017 was a very symbolically loaded ritual year. And I agree. And people can go back to those two shows if they want to relive why that is. But as for 2018, it's coming to a close. How do you feel the ritual potency has been this year? Not quite as intense. You know, certainly interesting and more 
sort of a continuity of themes and ideas that were raised first in 2017. I have no idea why 2017 seemed to be such a focus point for this kind of activity, but it was. And 2018 certainly has had its fill, maybe not quite so much as the year prior. But of course, you know, as we speak, there's this whole Osiris-Rex mission on Bennu. I, I can't even say that without laughing. It's just so absurd. You know, it's like it's so audacious. It cracks me up. And then, of course, the uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, has their Kiops mission. I won't trouble you with what that ridiculous acronym stands for, but it's as, as ridiculous as Osiris-Rex. I mean, they come up with these names and then they try to shoehorn their program into that. It's just, it's really laughable. But this whole thing with this asteroid or whatever it's supposed to be that was discovered on September 11th, 1999, sort of a fact that a lot of people aren't, you know, aware of. It's supposed to be two billion kilometers out. You know, it's really not that large. It really makes me wonder how they discovered this thing, quote unquote. But you know, it's NASA. It's the way things go. And, you know, we've seen enormous effort in the space realm. We've seen the the Falcon 9 sending up the ashes of the dead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, you know, on the heels of Osiris Rex, you know, Lord of the Dead, Mass of the Afterworld, one of two space-born Egyptian gods, the other being Ra. I mean, it's just laughable. It's all become so blatant. It's all so in your face. And I don't think anybody cares anymore. I think that anybody who would care has either exhausted themselves or is in the midst of being silenced, you know, the way they're doing this big crackdown on alt media. Mm. What else can you do? It's like, you know, being a major OCD sufferer myself, I find seeing compulsive behavior obsessive compulsive behavior and others like very entertaining <laughs> for some reason i don't know why maybe because it's like i can spot the patterns that maybe fly over a lot of the people's heads but you know nasa is just never ends with them and i have my little mottos on the secret sun and then you know one that a lot of readers will be familiar with is uh space is an altar yes because you really look at nasa and their activities and now elon musk with spacex and uh, you know, you sort of have uh, Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' little operation, sort of bringing up the rear. It's also, you know, the names and the dates and the destinations are also loaded. And, of course, the ESA has the Vega rocket, which they're always sending up for missions hither and yon. And, of course, Vega has turned out to be of vital and central importance to this whole ritual cycle that's emerging now. I have no idea why. I have no idea what it actually stands for or represents, but it's been very important for a very long time, as I discovered when I took a look at the Great Seal. You know, I think a lot of people will quibble and everyone will say, oh, I decoded it first and it means this and blah, blah, blah. But it's just like, I think I showed with mathematical accuracy what in fact it actually represents so there you go <laughs> yes and we're definitely going to get into that but from apollo to osiris it seems like nasa's up to the same thing they've always been up to and 
to give people a little more context from your blog, you do talk about this asteroid Bennu. Its discovery was announced on September 11th, 1999. Again, ritual dates with the context of things we've talked about before, like the Harvest Festival ritual on NASA's birthday. It's this connection between traumatic events and what NASA's doing. I don't get it, but they code these dates for sure. And it does kind of sound like cheap sci-fi to say that we're sending Osiris-Rex to be new. I mean, what the hell? But you mentioned... Cheops, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, but that is the space telescope. Cheops, yeah. Cheops. Yeah, the key, the C-H is Greek, it's a ka sound. And that name actually does go back to Egypt, right? The Great Pyramid, yeah. Right. So the mission of Cheops is to find super-Earths. And of course, you know, why would they be interested in finding super-Earths? Because they're interested in finding superhumans on these super-Earths. I mean. It's so transparent if you understand the language that's being spoken here. And, you know, like the fact that Cheops or Cheops is the appellation for this mission is it's, it's hilarious. It cracks me up. You know, what does that have to do with a planetary discovery mission? Well, on the face of it, and if you subscribe to, you know, the fake reality that mainstream news puts forth, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with it. But if you understand how these people really think and how they really work, you know, it has it has everything to do with it. And again, I mean, it's like, that's the Great Pyramid. So, you know, and what has always been sort of the icon of all the mysteries of Freemasonry or ancient astronaut theory or theosophy, up and down the line, it's been the Great Pyramid. It's been a focus of fascination for millennia. And it seems to have some extraordinary significance to the space program, which doesn't make sense, but there you go. Yeah, definitely one of those strange but true things. And I also wanted to ask you about Oumuamua, because it's being talked about again, and it all gets quite interesting, because just about a year ago now, I had talked to both you and Gordon about it, and just to refresh the memories out there, it is apparently the first interstellar object to come in and then leave our solar system. Some will tell you that it sped up as it left. And one of the big ideas circulating in those shows was this idea that if the Harvest Festival sacrifice, should we say, was maybe a calling up, so to speak, of the space gods, Amuamua maybe was the response. So with that context, we then have this recent Harvard study come out and make a bunch of headlines saying, yeah, this actually could be a sign of alien life. And even more recently, there's been news that now... Four more objects like it have been spotted. And for an object that was named for a word that translates to scout, it's actually acting like one, or so we're told. I don't know what we can take at face value, but this whole story is quite weird, isn't it? Well, the actual term is scout in advance of an invasion. Well, there you go. That's the actual definition <laughs> of it. So, And of course, the story that circulated as soon as that object was spotted was that it came from Vega in the constellation of Lyra. And this was in the wake of, you know, the Harvest Festival in Las Vegas and all that kind of thing. And of course, I've been following all this since Chris Cornell's death, you know, which really, I guess, kind of triggered the second wave of my synchromistic work. And it just never ends. It's almost like every rock I pick up these days has some secret code 
engraved into the bottom of it. And they're speculating now that there are actually 66 interstellar objects in the far reaches of the solar system. And, you know, it's like, what an interesting number, 66. And, you know, it's like these numbers seem to come up over and over again. They love the twin numbers. They love the whole idea of twins, the twin Earth, the twin suns, the twin stars. We have this, what they call APAP. You know, it's like, where did, you know, why are they drawing on all this mythology? You know, we had Osiris-Rex landing, and then we had this Cheops satellite, which just makes me laugh so intensely. Mm-hmm. And then we have this APAP, which is the Egyptian rendering of, you know, the more familiar Apophis, which Apophis is the serpent of doom, essentially. It's kind of almost synonymous with Tiamat in Sumerian and Babylonian mythology. So, like, you know, it's just, it's funny to me that all this stuff is coming up. And, of course, this APEP, I'll just use Apophis because APEP is a little, <laughs> little more difficult to say. So, this Apophis supernova it's of course it's twin stars it's always these twins you know or binary you know something going nova or twin neutron suns i mean it just never ends and this is what i call the emerging dominant archetypes or the emergent archetypal dominance you know however you choose to phrase it and what i'm basically talking about is that there's this new language that's emerging you know everyone is familiar with all the illuminati stuff or the freemasonry stuff and again i never really took that stuff all that seriously because it just seemed a little too vaudeville you know when you have people like beyonce or rihanna or jay-z or lady gaga whoever utilizing all the symbolism it's very hard to take seriously but it almost seems like that's fertilizing the fields before the seeds are planted i don't think that stuff really has the importance in and of itself that people assign to it i think it's like layers within layers it's like secrets within secrets it's symbols within symbols for instance again this whole idea with the eye and the pyramid on the dollar bill in fact the eye is not actually in the pyramid it's floating above it but you know again you know you understand the symbolism everybody knows it i mean School children know it. 20 years ago, this was like deepest, darkest, Usenet craziness. But now, in the wake of Da Vinci Code and National Treasure and, and all these kind of things that sort of plowed the fields, so to speak, in the early 2000s, I mean, it's everywhere now. And everybody knows and everybody understands it. You know, I never really thought it was particularly interesting because of the way it was used. It was like, what a semiotician would call an empty signifier. It's using a symbol, but not really attaching a real relevance to it, a connotation to it. And so much of the stuff from sites like Vigilant Citizen or whoever, I mean, the symbolism was a mishmash. It had no real meaning. It was just play. But I think, you know, it got people familiar with that. And now, of course, we see... The ante has almost been upped in some ways because now we see all this Baphomet symbolism and the Satanism symbolism. You know, there's this whole controversy as we speak going on at the state capitol in Illinois. And then there's this manufactured controversy with the Satanic Temple, which I have no doubt in my mind is a CIA operation. 
and The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, which is this uh, Netflix series that's based on this comic book, you know, based on the old innocent, wholesome teenage witch who's now like a blood drinking Satanist, you know, <laughs> it's just like, so that whole thing, I mean, I don't take that stuff seriously in and of itself either. I think that all seems like a manipulation in many ways. But, you know, there are symbols that I've been looking at that I don't think most people have been looking at that just seem to reoccur over and over and over and over and over again. And to me, they seem to be maybe a little bit closer to where the agenda is actually leading. And in light of the things that I was talking about last year with transgenics and gene editing and artificial insemination, not even artificial insemination, artificial procreation in whole, all these things are beginning to leach into the mainstream, especially with these CRISPR babies in China. You know, but last year I was talking about, you know, these reports that scientists were talking about fetal CRISPR gene editing. So the things that I've been looking at might seem obscure or almost frivolous to a lot of people, but they seem to have a very high predictive quality to them. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the Great Seal. Let's get into that a little bit more, because the more we've talked, the more star magic seems to come up. One of the big components of the Harvest Festival stuff was the timing around the occultation of Regulus. And we talked about how the Book of Revelations is really a coded narrative of the constellations movements. And even that the household item characters in Beauty and the Beast are actually modeled after constellations. And you've traced this type of celestial subtext all the way to the Great Seal, it seems. Is this what you think the eye in the pyramid and the eagle with the shield symbols are really all about now? Just twin allusions to Lyra, is it? Yeah, to Lyra and to Vega. And again, what was I talking about last year with Chris Cornell's death and the relationship to Jeff Buckley, you know, which is a whole other discussion because, you know, this whole idea of the dying and rising shepherd boy that seems to repeat over and over throughout history. And, and I pointed that Jeff Buckley, actually his real name was Scott Moorhead, but his adopted name Buckley in Gaelic means shepherd boy. But the shepherd boy is Bowotes, which is just north of the celestial equator of Virgo and Leo. And Bowotes has always had a very close connection to that sort of twinning of those, what I call the beauty and the beast constellations but there's actually a super void according to astronomers there's a region of space within the constellation of Awodes that's empty that has nothing and it's enormous it's millions of light years across but there's also another super void in Aradnus and Aradnus is the river so it's like the shepherd boy and the river both have these super voids in the mind. You, you know, you're following me. You know, you know that whole narrative by now. I hope a lot of your listeners are familiar with that narrative by now. But it's like, you know, Jeff Buckley, who drowned in the Mississippi River, and you have these two giant voids in space. The one in Aradnus is called the cold spot. And there are a lot of astronomers that believe that this is actually created by another universe bumping up against ours. And that that is these voids are almost like some sort of window area where things, radiation, you know, whatever, can come through into our universe from this other universe because the, the grinding of these two universes against each other is creating these massive 
empty spots. And that has to do with another thing that I was talking about, which is like supernovas and how supernovas particularly, it's almost counterintuitive because scientists now believe that a supernova that's very far away, it's somehow transmitting through the supervoid, the cosmic rays, the cosmic galactic radiation is going to have much more of an impact on us. And this, of course, led me to the 1987A supernova, which was in Dorado, and we can get to that later and how that corresponds to the pearly dewdrops thing and the pearly dewdrops being, you know, what I now believe is cosmic rays. So it isn't just star magic. It isn't just, you know, what you would believe star magic to be, which is ceremonial, symbolic. You know, it's a symbolic system that is maybe tied into astrology or maybe tied into Babylonian star magic because they were really the innovators of this. I think it has to do with these understandings of these cosmic rays, these galactic energies, neutrinos, and all these kind of things that are coming through space and influence us in very direct ways because it's believed that cosmic radiation, cosmic rays are responsible, for instance, for lightning. That lightning is caused by the antimatter from these cosmic rays colliding with the matter in our atmosphere. So it isn't just star magic in and of itself as we would understand it, which is almost like a form of animism. I think that there's a lot of science tied up in this, and it has to do with understandings of the physics, these very advanced and, and esoteric physics that are really almost like a kind of sorcery in and of themselves. I can barely wrap my mind around it just to start with, but I just keep seeing these things corresponding to, for instance, again, to these supervoids, which are created in theory by universes. So that to me ties into the whole idea of twins, that there's like this twin universe. And it's like, what is our relationship with this twin universe? How does it affect us? It's a whole thing. And it might sound completely arcane and confusing to people. And like I said, I'm still in the very earliest days of trying to even just grasp that this thing even is real, but it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me in the timing of these NASA rituals and some of these mass rituals at these sporting events and awards ceremonies that I think they all have to do with this understanding that the movement of this, the cosmos, and particularly sound, sound and music and its relation to the cosmos, grants power you know, onto the people that can understand it. It might be complete delusion and insanity on their part, but I do believe that it's at the very core. You know, if you peel away sort of all the disguises, it's almost like a, you know, a Russian doll, and you get to the core, it seems to be this very strange and esoteric understanding of cosmic rays and antimatter and radiation and stuff. There's an argument that can be made that, you know, say the ancient Saturn cults were almost sort of lurching towards this because, you know, as Gordon explained to me, I mean, Saturn was seen as the gateway to the rest of the universe, that Saturn was seen in the ancient times as the outermost planet. So that, I think, is the real reason there's this sort of adoration and canonization of Saturn and Saturn symbolism, because it is seen as the gateway to the stars. And, you know, you've talked to Gordon, you've talked to people like Austin Kopic, you know, this whole idea of the deckhands. And I really have to admit that, like, 
I can't even start to address that stuff. It's not the way my mind works. I'm just trying to see like what the gross movements of planets and stars and constellations and how that correspond to how people behave. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand the distinction here? It's like if you go past the occult symbolism that we're familiar with and you just start to look like, well, if they're playing with these symbols at this time and in this place, how does that correspond to what's going on in the sky? And do they feel somehow that what's going on in the sky is going to impact them and that they can manipulate it or at least it's almost like putting a bucket out for rainwater or something. You know, can they take advantage of this if certain rituals are performed? And once you sort of reach that understanding and then you go back and look at particularly all these things going on in the past couple of years, it all congeals, it all gels. And I think this whole idea with Oumuamua ties into that. Because why did they say it was from Vega, from Lyra? I mean, the thing was literally just a pixel on a screen. It was the size of a pixel on the screen. How can you just look at that and determine that it came from Lyra or, you know, specifically Vega, like in the aftermath of Las Vegas and so on and so forth? You know, they since backpedaled on that, but I think that that was part of this ritual. Maybe they were anticipating that this thing was coming in. Maybe they spotted it, you know, in the outer reaches, like in the Oort cloud or something, and they knew it was going to make a flyby. So all these events were so orchestrated. The same way when you read the ancient, the Hindu festival of Diwali, you know, the festival of lights, God was going to come in for a landing. So, you know, it's, what were those, the Vamanas, you know, it's going to come in for a landing as Vamanas, so they all get out there with a lantern so he can land. It seems to me like very much the same kind of mindset. But again, I mean, this just probably seems so unbelievably arcane to most people, and certainly to me, but... You know, if I sort of plug this in as sort of like the questions I ask, it just keeps coming up aces. I mean, it's like I'm at a Las Vegas craps table, you know, and I just keep rolling winners. It's just unbelievable. So, I mean, in a very long-winded and roundabout fashion, because, again, it's not something that I've really been able to put my fingers on, it isn't just the stars. It's more than the stars. It has to do with, you know, nebulas and explosions in the sky, so to speak, supernovas, you know, all these events in the cosmos that sort of animate the stars, if that makes sense. Well, I really do think that phrase, space is an altar, pretty much nails it. And if it all wasn't complex enough, we also have this factor where sometimes things are literally true, and sometimes, even though they're presented one way, they're really just symbolically true or pieces are moved to fit tighter than they really do. Like the example last time we talked about how Boris Johnson recited that poem Mandalay, and it was thrown into the mix when the shooting happened at Mandalay Bay to make it look related, but it was actually something that was months old. So with Amuamua, I don't know if it's really acting like a, quote, scout before an invasion, or if it's all just talk made to look like the name was foreshadowing. But... Regardless, it's fascinating how ritualized and symbolic our space agencies and information systems are, and a lot of people do seem to get hung up on the categories of spirits versus aliens, 
But I don't know that we even need to make that distinction. And as trendy as spirits are, a lot of this stuff does seem to point to space in one way or another, just like you've been saying. Yeah, I'm very much of like all of the above kind of guy. You know, with so many things that we're not certain of that we don't have access to the information that defines them, why not keep all your options open? You know what I'm saying? In the case, <laughs> it's just funny because I realized in that whole rant that I just unloaded on you, I didn't actually address the Lyra issue. So, but I had to sort of preface it because I want people to understand where I'm getting at. So one of the key features in the constellation of Lyra, which is either Apollo or Orpheus's lyre or his harp, if you look for the symbolism, you're going to see it. For instance, the old Irish flag was Lyra. Lyra was said to be King David's harp. I believe that the Mexican flag is Lyra and its relationship to Draco. So it's the kind of thing where this has just been hiding in plain sight, because one of the things I discovered is that the old passport that was written for the United States in its earliest days showed you that the eagle that everybody's familiar with, the eagle with the shield, I mean, the shield is actually... It's a transposition of the harp, because if you just picture that eagle on the shield on the obverse of the great seal, it's identical to, particularly at that time, the illustrations of Lyra. And, you know, the shield and the harp, or the lyre, are essentially identical in shape. And the, the stripes, basically, are stand-ins for the strings on the harp. Again, if you look at this old passport from the early 1800s you know it has the united states of america so on and so forth but the eagle that we're familiar with from the dollar bill is actually a depiction of lyra so this is official united states documentation this is an official document a passport which you know at that point in time was very rare that a lot of people held passports and it was also extremely important particularly for a new country so it was so important for them for some reason to put a depiction of Lyra, which, again, is identical to the eagle and, and the great seal. But, you know, there's that cloud with the stars, you know, that everybody sort of has always speculated on. You know, and if everybody wants to just take out a dollar bill or just look up a JPEG on your computer of that, and when you look at the cloud over the eagle, what that actually is, and I believe very strongly that is because I think it shows up in other contexts, is that it's the ring nebula. So just to give a sense of history, there was a conference called by the early founding fathers of the United States to design heraldry, you know, the flag and the seal and all these kind of things. And the images that we're familiar with weren't actually developed until six years later in 1782. But what happened in between then is that the Ring Nebula was discovered. And the Ring Nebula is basically... You've probably seen in National Geographic, I mean, it looks like a giant eye opening up in space, and it's just to the south of Lyra. Now, what I believe happened is that when this object was spotted by the Freemasons and the other secret society members that made up the entirety of the early United States government, when you see that term, Anuit Keptus, you know, he has favored our undertakings, I believe that what that was inspired by was when the Ring Nebula was discovered, they saw this 
as a sign. You know, it was a sign in the heavens. When you talk about star magic, it doesn't get any more potent than that. You know, it's like Lyra has always been important for reasons that I cannot understand, but they were looking at it. You know, they had telescopes. You know, these guys were sort of polymaths interested in all sorts of different sciences. And when this whole thing shows up with the ring nebula, this giant eye in the sky, basically, they took that as an omen that it's time to start now. Okay, it's time to get the show on the road. And that's why I think that the eye, which again is not part of the pyramid, it's the capstone. Now, the interesting thing about that, and folks can go to my blog, and maybe Greg can put the link in the description. But basically what that is, is that it's sort of a 3D model of stars connected in the constellation of Lyra. So for instance, it's Sulafat and Shaliak and Vega and Zeta Lyra. If you just connect those stars at an upside down angle, you'll see the unfinished pyramid. So what I did is I traced those stars out on a constellation map and they overlay perfectly. I mean, bang on perfectly to the Great Seal. The perspective in the Great Seal, it's kind of wonky. It's not deep enough. It doesn't look right. Well, the reason it doesn't look right is because they overlaid this star map of Lyra over the unfinished pyramid. But the top of it is sort of angled in between Sheliak and Sulafat. But Sulafat marks the bottom where that triangle with the eye sits, and Sheliak marks the top of the unfinished pyramid. So if you just drew a 180-degree line straight across from Sheliak, you'd have the top of that pyramid. But here's the interesting thing. So we have that correspondence there, but when you look at that correspondence and you connect the dots in those star maps, the ring nebula is right where the all-seeing eye is. So people are going to say, well, it means this, and it means this in, you know, Rosicrucianism or alchemy or whatever. Well, maybe it does. But when you look at that actual seal, it's so dead on that there's absolutely no way you can argue with it. It's the all-seeing eye is the ring nebula. And again, like I think that when that showed up, and it showed up in 1779, when that was first spotted, they said, that's the all-seeing eye of their god, their Masonic god, or whomever, and he favors us. I mean, this is the way magic and statecraft have intersected for millennia. I mean, the Romans, they wouldn't even like cross the street unless they ripped open a squirrel or something and read its entrails. You understand what I'm saying? So it's just like, Statecraft and magic have always been very intimately linked, and there's just no arguing with the geometry here. I mean, it's perfect. It's dead on. It explains why the capstone is floating above the pyramid, and it also explains why we have that real wonky perspective on the left-hand side. Once you understand that, a lot of people are going to disagree with that, and a lot of people are going to be like, oh, wait. It almost seems too obvious. It's so obvious and it's hidden in plain sight that people are going to be disappointed. They're going to think, well, it's going to mean something more. But let's fast forward again to this period that we're talking about, like when Vega in this star map that I'm discussing here, Vega is the cornerstone. And if you know about Freemasonry and even like just Masonry, like, you know, operative 
occupational masonry, I mean, the cornerstone was always seen as extremely important in building any sort of edifice. So Vega is the cornerstone in this unfinished pyramid that I'm talking about that you can make, anybody can make, by connecting these stars. So with that and the ring nebula, with the ring nebula being the all-seeing eye, all of a sudden I just start thinking like, well, where else is this? You know, I just start looking around the sky. So it's like then a physical object, which they claim came from Vega, right? I mean, shortly after the whole thing in Las Vegas. I mean, I did your show after that. We all know what I was looking at. I mean, everybody, so many people have been looking at the symbolism of that. It's overkill. And then this thing from Vega shows up. Am I the only person who like sort of said, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> what were we talking about for like the entire month? And then this thing from Vega shows up. I mean, hello. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I don't understand why there's this fixation on Vega, but there is. And I think the eagle has landed is Vega, but Vega is also the falling angel. Well, I believe that it's seen as synonymous with the falling angels, you know, with the watchers. And that's because the term Vega comes from the Arabic, an Arabic phrase meaning the eagle who lands or the eagle who falls. So what did they say in that whole Apollo show? You know, the eagle has landed. And the eagle somehow has something to do with Vega and Lyra. I don't know why yet. I'm still working on it. But that was a real mind blower to me. And then I went back and read the history and it's like the Adams brothers, you know, we had George Bush who passed away recently. So that was a father son president tag team, right? Well, they were the second father son presidential tag team because the first was John Adams and John Quincy Adams. Now the interesting thing about John Adams and John Quincy Adams is that they were not Freemasons. John Quincy Adams became the presidential candidate for the anti-Masonic party, which was the first major third party movement in the United States and led to so many things that we're still dealing with today. You know, for instance, Skull and Bones was sort of a reaction to that. The whole Greek system, the fraternal system was really a reaction to the anti-Masonic party. But these guys were not really big into the, you know, to say the least, into the Freemasons. And there are a lot of rumors that they were members of what's called the Dragon Society. And the Dragon Society is something that dates back to England. And I'm not exactly sure, but I think it might have something to do with this whole idea that the royal families, the aristocrats of England can all tie their lineage back to Vlad the Impaler, who is the dragon. You know, Dracula means the dragon, right? So I think there might have been some sort of connotation there. I'm not exactly sure. But anyway, the point is, is that the Adams father and son, were really into this whole adoration of Vega and were very open about it and very adamant about it, no pun intended. I mean, they were very adamant that Vega becomes Lyra, including Vega, become the actual symbols of the United States. So I think I spell out rather methodically how the Great Seal is just twin depictions of Lyra. I don't understand why. But, you know, the thing that really struck me is that back in April, there was that whole deal with, quote unquote, chemical attack in Syria and so on and so forth. And everyone's like, well, how is Trump going to respond to this? And then they launched these rockets 
on Friday the 13th. You know, it's just, it never ends. But that was also the start of the Lyrids. And the Lyrids are the media showers that seem to come from the direction of Lyra. That just seemed to me like could be, it looked like a case of sympathetic magic. That when you look at those rockets, I mean, I don't think any of them actually hit anything. They just sort of landed in the desert. But when you see the footage of those rockets, they're almost identical to meteors. When you see these meteor showers, you know, shooting stars, so on and so forth. So that to me, just it just seems like somebody was writing a script. And this whole thing with Khashoggi, he was killed, allegedly killed. I mean, who knows what really happened in the Turkish embassy at the start of the Orionids. And the Orionids were specifically called the Nephilim by the ancient Jews. The wording is a little different, but, you know, they were identified with the Nephilim in the Bible, you know, the fallen angels, the watchers, so on and so forth. So it's just very interesting that there's this sort of very ritualistic kind of feeling murder on the day that the Orionids begin. And then there's this bombing of Damascus and, you know, the whole thing with Syria and Sirius and so on and so forth on the, the opening day of the Lyrids. So it's probably like brand new to a lot of your listeners. This whole idea that it isn't just stars, it's these media showers and these explosions, you know, the supernova and so on. You know, we're hearing that Beetlejuice, Betelgeuse is in Orion, of course, is said to be going supernova at some point in time. There's a supernova that they're expecting in 2020, and I believe that's also a twin thing, but it's also the twin things of the 20 and the 20. So... Yeah, it just seems like a brand new, maybe not a brand new for a lot of people, but it just seems to me that it's not something that people are discussing out there. And I don't know why, but to me, it just seems very obvious that a lot of the ritualism and the symbolism that we're seeing is connected to these cosmic events. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. And people really should check out your blog post on the Great Seal and look at the back of a dollar. Because I'm pretty convinced this is what we're looking at. Of course, if it was just one side, maybe people could dismiss it. But both sides are representations of Lyra in different forms, which is even more specific. The side of the pyramid is a full-on overlay of the actual look of the constellation in the night sky. And the shield on the other side hides the symbolic representation with the harp. And as you said, people might think the harp and the shield is a bit of a stretch, but when you see it on the old passport, it's not nearly as hidden. It's way more obvious. And it makes me think about all the structures that align with these stars, as well as the Great Pyramid. Maybe it's always been about pointing back home, so to speak. If I was to go way out there, I mean, anytime humans conquer a new land, we tend to plant our flag. Maybe we have some ancient non-human power on the planet that likes to embed subtle nods to where they're really from. I mean, why else? Well, see, that sort of brings me up to, you know, if you asked me to speculate where I think this is sort of headed. Because I keep finding this link between Lyra and Orion. And they're sort of on opposite sides of the celestial globe. So I, I don't understand exactly where that's coming from or what exactly it means. I do know that Orion is identified with Nimrod the Hunter from the Bible and also to the Nephilim. And it's also when we talk about the string of pearls, 
the belt of Orion was called the String of Pearls. And then we recently saw these images of strings of pearls, quote unquote, appearing on the surface of Jupiter. And we also saw a dolphin. Now a dolphin is going to tie into Apollo and it's also going to tie into Delphi and the Oracle. So it almost seems like, you know, those little, those old school label cloud that you would see in old blogs where it's just like a bunch of labels. Like the word clouds. Yeah. And they're all sort of just revolving around each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like orbiting each other. And then, you know, I mean, you can picture that. It's very circa 2002 imagery there. That's how this stuff all seems to work. Now, let me get back to this because I think this is important because everyone's seen that cover of The Economist, that whole idea of that the world currency will be called the Phoenix and whatnot. I actually believe now that the Phoenix and by extension, Bennu, okay, Bennu, and let's, and I'll bring this all full circle for you in a moment, but I believe that the Phoenix is also Lyra. And the reason being is because I've seen a lot of depictions of the Phoenix in alchemical maps and texts and star maps and all these kind of things. And it's the depiction of it is very similar to Lyra, where it's almost like an eagle with like a vulture's neck. It's a very strange looking bird. And if you go to that great seal post, you'll see that exactly. And I believe, and I don't know how exactly you know anyone would have known this, but I believe that the flame, the fire that was associated with the phoenix, again, is that nebula. Because, you know, a nebula is basically part of a stellar explosion. And then something new rises from that, right? When there's a stellar explosion, the gases over thousands of years and so on and so forth, you know, they'll collect and they'll congeal into new planets or, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, it's a whole thing in astronomy. But I definitely believe that the phoenix is Lyra. And I don't know why, but it is. Okay, so let's just talk about the OSIRIS-REx mission for a moment. OSIRIS was also associated with Orion. Okay? I mean, you know about the shafts and the Great Pyramid and how they align at a certain point in prehistory or something with the belt of Orion. Yes. And that there's this whole mythology and symbolism that OSIRIS doesn't just ascend into space. He ascends to Orion. Okay, so... Then we have Orion, and then we have Bennu. And Bennu is sort of the precursor to the Greco-Roman phoenix idea. So it all starts with the Bennu, and eventually becomes what we're more familiar with in mythology as being the phoenix. So what are we seeing here? Exactly what I've been talking about. We're seeing Orion rendezvousing with Lyra. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because if you look at those illustrations, and there's plenty you can see online, and you can see how there seemed to be almost like an esoteric or clandestine understanding that the phoenix was somehow describing Lyra, when we see this rendezvous in space, you know, on September 11th, of course, because what other day would it possibly be, have been said to be discovered? You know, this this object that they claim to discover on September 11th, 1999, and there's our twin nines, or there's the 999 that we spoke about before, yeah. you know, that I keep seeing still to this day. I mean, I keep seeing these 999s and 27s and so on and so forth. But I really believe that this mission, if in fact it even exists, is some sort of symbolic recognition of the twinning of Lyra and Orion. I don't know why. 
I haven't gotten there yet. You know, maybe we can talk about it in six months when I figure it out. But again, I just keep seeing it over and over and over again. And there it is. But the interesting thing as well is that Orion, you know, it's in the same neighborhood as Aradnus, and Aradnus is the super void, and Lyra is more sort of on the other side. That's more in the uh, neighborhood of Draco, but also Cygnus. Now, the Kepler mission, the Kepler space satellite, where has it been focused for however many years, 15 years or so? I don't, I'm not exactly sure on the chronology here when that mission was said to go up. They say it's focused on Cygnus, but it's actually focused on the space between Cygnus and Lyra. Okay? So that's very interesting to them. And this has been a you know, whole history of very strange and interesting discoveries that they've claimed to have made in that neighborhood between Cygnus and Lyra. And I know this is controversial, but for instance, Andrew Collins, I don't know if you've had him on your show yet, but Andrew Collins claims that the alignment of the Great Pyramids actually is not Orion, but it's actually Cygnus. So I don't know. But also what was found in that neighborhood was Tabby Star. Now, if you don't know what Tabby Star is, again, it's a great controversy surrounding this whole situation. But Tabby Star is the star that they believe has a Dyson sphere built around it. Or some astronomers believe that because it keeps dimming and it shouldn't be, you know, they're not exactly sure why the star seems to be losing light. And some people have argued that you have a, a type three civilization, so to speak, here what's called an interstellar civilization that have mastered the processes of the cosmos. And they're building this Dyson sphere over the star in order to harness its energy. But at the same time, I believe very, very strongly that the supernova in Dorado, in the large Magellanic cloud back in 1987, if you look at that, it looks like no supernova you've ever seen. It's geometric, it's symmetrical, and it's basically a string of pearls around what looks like a ruby. And if anybody remembers my last appearance on your show and you hear that the whole thing with string of pearls and rubies, what connotation are you going to have with that? Mm -hmm. I mean, we can leave that be for now. <laughs> but I really believe that there's immense significance attached to this. I'm not exactly sure why. But I think that it explains these rituals. But then again, let's, okay, let's go there. Because you brought it up and now I want to go there. Sure. I mean, what if they're expecting visitors? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're expecting visitors. And I've had this conversation with Gordon a number of times. You know, we've sort of had this like mental experiment, so to speak. It's like this thought experiment. It's like, what if the world was being colonized by a distant galaxy? or star system, some sort of alien race that is immeasurably more advanced than us, but is piggybacking on the technology that they may have originally ceded to us back after World War II to beam over their, say, their genetic information and their technology and their AIs. You know what I'm saying? I mean, like, like two sides of a stargate. Like, you've got to build something over there. For us to get to you and overtake you. Exactly. But if you make that proposition, how would anything that we're seeing really look different? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, we're talking about quantum computing now. We're talking about extraordinarily advanced AI. There's the whole deal with CERN. What if 
just as a thought experiment here, what if technology had been ceded to us 70 years ago in order to make the world more conducive to their arrival? Mm. You know what I'm saying? So it's like we need to get our technology not necessarily up to par with theirs, but so they can operate here. You know, we need to build these massive computers and so on and so forth. But we also need to build these enormously powerful telescopes and these orbital telescopes that can basically receive light transmissions, you know, neutrinos or cosmic rays that they're encoded, some sort of lasers, perhaps interstellar lasers that are encoded in which information for genetics are encoded. Because just think about it, if you were a truly advanced civilization and you wanted to travel to another planet, how would you choose to get there? Would you like get in your friggin' tin cans, in your cat food tins, <laughs> and risk a thousand years in deep space? Or would you just figure out a way to bypass that by transmitting your technology and find sort of a pre-technological civilization or a proto-technological civilization somebody who's sort of getting there, somebody who's sort of on the way, and download some information to one of their primitive computers that they can then use to build more elaborate computers, more sophisticated computers that will make it easier for you to get your information transmitted over there, and in turn, get your genetics transferred over there. Now, the interesting thing about that is, you know, okay, that's a great science fiction kind of premise, right? And I believe that there have been, I believe there was the Threshold TV series was sort of something along the lines of that. And there was a comic book by Warren Ellis prior to that called Global Frequency. So just make that assumption that, you know, how would that look any different than what's going on today? Because now what we're seeing, the whole idea of natural birth is being completely usurped, is being completely subverted. And so you can have babies with three parents three male parents, three female parents. You know, you can have somebody give birth to their own child. You create eggs from their cheek scrapings and sperm from their hair. You're seeing articles now talking about, like, anybody can have a baby whenever they want. I mean, I saw that exact phrase being used in an article in Futurism. And there's this, you know, what they call the birth bag now, which is like an artificial womb. So if you can gestate a zygote, and once it evolves into that embryonic stage, you can transfer that into one of these birth bags, which is just basically a plastic bag with amniotic fluid in it. And they've been raising livestock like this. We're seeing the clones now. I noticed you had mentioned that giant bull. We're seeing all these animals being engineered to be just grotesquely muscular, not just cows, but pigs. So if you look at everything that's been going on, particularly going on, you know, now in the age of 5G and AI and CERN and D-Wave, these are technologies that no one could have even begun to have conceived back in the 40s. Now, these people in the 40s were not stupid. These people were extremely bright, and they were doing all that calculations on paper. You know what I'm saying? It's like, these are guys who are like doing advanced particle physics with a pencil and a paper. So they weren't dumb. They were probably smarter than most of our scientists today. But they could never conceive of any of this stuff. Maybe some of our more deluded science fiction writers could. But we are becoming so acclimated and so accustomed to what 
10 years ago would have been just complete science fiction is now reality. And it's really rather stunning. The CRISPR thing has really sort of kicked open Pandora's box. You're hearing a lot of talk, well, let's get rid of all the mosquitoes. Well, how do you get rid of all the mosquitoes? You engineer mosquitoes so they only breed men. They only breed men and they don't breed females. So eventually the entire species will die off. Mm -hmm. Think about that for a while. Think about (laughs) how that sort of maybe corresponds to things that are going on in the world today. Very interesting. And you know who's behind that? Bill Gates and Google. Of course. They're behind these experiments to eliminate mosquitoes from the biosphere, from the food chain. Now you think, well, mosquitoes are horrible things. You know, they have malaria. I mean, untold numbers of deaths throughout history have been caused by mosquitoes and the diseases that they bring. Well, okay, that's true. But at the same time, mosquitoes are extraordinarily important to the food chain because there are a lot of things that eat them. You know, there are frogs and bats and birds and you name it that rely on mosquitoes as their food source. Right. So how is that going to affect our biosphere? You know, and now this whole idea of like, well, let's dim the sun. It's like this whole Mr. Burns idea of spraying these aerosols, aluminum particles. Aluminum, barium, strontium. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, so you think that maybe all these people who are talking about chemtrails 20 years ago or maybe right do you think they just came up with this idea well let's just spray barium and strontium and all these kind of things into the upper atmosphere just on a lark you know it's like science never works like that science always starts small and works their way up so i mean i've seen chemtrails and you know so many people I've, i know have seen chemtrails and now it's all in the open now harvard university is saying yeah we're going to do that because we want to cool the earth well, what are you going to do when you cool the Earth at the same time that solar activity is, you know, what they believe that might be a new solar minimum? Mm-hmm. You know, you're basically going to freeze the Earth to death. You're going to destroy our food crops and kill off most of the planet. So, I mean, you know, qui bono, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, maybe they've done that before. Yeah, nobody down here benefits from that. So, I don't know. I mean, this is all like really crazy stuff. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, you, you got to at least consider it, you know? Yes, I like it. And I was just thinking, you know, consider going to Mars as an analogy. Everybody's talking about that. Imagine there is some indigenous population on Mars and imagine we were going to get there through non-physical means somehow. Like you said, somehow send our DNA or something. Well, what could we do in advance if we could reach out to them? We could have them prep the environment. It's a kind of a shitty environment for us. We could have them maybe set it up for us a little bit better. We could make sure we have communication tools there once we get there by having them build maybe telescopes that can look back home and that kind of thing. We would maybe usher in a eugenics program for the indigenous population to wipe themselves out. And maybe we would go to their bright minds like their Nikola Teslas and implant ideas in their head to bring forth certain technologies because a lot of these guys have said they're getting these messages from elsewhere. And we think it's spirits or maybe we that's our first go to, but it doesn't have to be. Maybe we're using that. Maybe they're using like some kind of religious superstition against us. It's like a kind of a cargo cult thing. And we think it might be spirits. It might be distant aliens who are going to show up here eventually. It's a far out thing. But I mean, I'm I'm liking it because spirits are so trendy getting back to aliens. And this would be like a non-physical transportation mechanism so now what are you talking about non-physical aliens what's the difference with these definitions at this point well you know one of the things that i blogged about and this ties into 
my fixation on the blog that we have people in marginal corners of the popular arts who have foreseen all this. Somehow received information pertaining to this before the rest of us. You know, one of course is easy, Jack Kirby. Now, Jack Kirby, at the same time, he was doing a storyline, sort of this epic storyline that seemed to uncannily predict the Gulf Wars and the trial of Saddam Hussein and so on and so forth. I mean, this is something that I blogged on, you know, rather extensively a number of years ago. Also had a concurrent and parallel storyline about this alien who came to the planet through a stargate, Hmm. which he called the door. And in the Stargate, this alien was collecting physical objects. You know, the planet was dying and they needed matter that they could convert into energy because these beings were energy beings. And they wore suits so they could operate in our world, you know, in our dimension, in our biosphere. They needed something to contain their essence. So they used these robotic suits that they could operate and gather up matter. I mean, it was just like anything. It was like, you know, skyscrapers and the Statue of Liberty and freight trains, you know, just anything that they could get their hands on because they needed that for the energy. So what happens is that one of these beings is stranded here on this planet and has this spaceship, this flying saucer that, <coughs> you know, she, it turns out to be a she, had used to operate in our dimension. And she instructs two earthlings, one of which is an anthropomorphic dog and one is a human, to operate the machinery so she can create a body for herself using the human's DNA. And it's interesting because she uses the human's DNA and becomes a she, becomes a woman. But meanwhile, I mean, it was a ball of energy. It had no gender. So that's kind of interesting in the context of recent social trends and so on and so forth. But anyway, the name of the story was The Birth Bag. And that always stuck with me, the birth bag, because what are we seeing now everywhere is these birth bags. And of course, last year at the E3 show in Las Vegas, when Netflix was promoting this series, Altered Carbon, they had these lifelike mannequins in these giant plastic bags. So it's just like, well, if you can use human DNA, I mean, this is being openly talked about, you know, it's like introducing something else this whole thing with transgenics and so on and so forth. And of course, this gets back to our thought experiment. But what if, you know, all this is leading towards somebody's beaming their genome into our biosphere. They can't breathe our air. They can't deal with our diseases, so on and so forth. So they need to take our genetic information to build new bodies for themselves in which they can operate. Mm. And if you sort of go back in Egyptian mythology, there was this whole idea that the Egyptian gods were exactly that. They were basically energy beings that used human bodies as incarnational tools in order that they could survive in a biosphere. Again, if you go back and read some of the Sumerian and Babylonian mythologies, they're talking like very matter-of-factly about the gods that they're interacting with Basically, the way you and I would interact with anybody, it's rather matter of fact. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, the heavens opened up and I saw Ishtar going to the post office. It's like, no, you saw Ishtar going to the post office because that's what she did. That's how she operated in our world. It was very common and it was taken for granted. Mm. Again, I don't know. Is that what we're going to be seeing in the future? 
if I was going to take everything that's going on now and really compose a science fictional epic around it, that's exactly the conclusion I would come to. Let's just say that. But the thing I want to get back to in light of this whole ridiculous Osiris Rex and Bennu situation, you know, like I said, both Lyra and Orion, what's the link? Well, maybe the link is that they're both associated with the fallen angels. You know, the fallen angels being celestial beings that took on incarnation and took wives and created offspring and so on and so forth. So again, I mean, this could all just be fantasy. This could all be like some weird delusion that a bunch of really rich people are playing out. I don't know. But I'm just telling you what the symbolism is telling me, and it seems to be pretty consistent narrative. Right. It's just two different lenses. It's like you have the religious lens of angels coming down and mating with people, and you have the sci-fi narrative that's basically the same thing. It is pretty wild. Yeah, well, you know, the other thing, too, is that before we had begun this interview, we were talking about psychedelic research and everything. And I always think back to Rick Strassman and the DMT research that he was undertaking. He stopped doing it because he realized that everyone was reporting, you know, people who didn't know each other, people from different walks of life, you know, just random test subjects were reporting the same experience. And they all seemed to be reporting these encounters with these malevolent beings or at least these beings that didn't seem to like us very much, that were trying to get into our reality. And that's what inspired him to stop. Hmm. So it's just like, I don't know. One thing that I blogged about very early on, you know, when I was very sick, had a very high fever, and basically my living room turned into another reality, and there was a friggin' leprechaun sitting in the middle of the room screaming at me in some language I didn't understand. Okay, so I was sick and I was having a hallucination, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Well, the thing is that it was extraordinarily real. You know, it had weight, it had sound, it was just like, it stuck with me. When I would hear people like Graham Hancock talking about some of the ayahuasca shamans down Central America and so on, they would have essentially identical experiences to that. And I'd actually spoken to Graham Hancock after his presentation, and I told him about that experience. So I said, well, yeah, I mean, he said, fever is one of the things that can light up those DMT circuits in your brain. So what does that mean? So it's like, somehow, I was transported into this identical reality that all people who took ayahuasca or DMT were reporting. So what does that mean? This is what I'm saying. You can't say, well, it's aliens or it's spirits or it's like this, it's that. It's like, like we don't know. And it could be like some sort of weird confluence of all of the above. And the thing is, is that like if you came to, into contact with that and you had no real frame of reference for what you were encountering, how are you going to perceive that? You have no idea. So I am very much an all of the above guy because you got to keep your options open because we just simply don't know. Right. And all this stuff we're talking about, I mean, even though we are speculating about the idea that there might have been something that did get in that got into a position of power and maybe took over and that's what's driving our culture and our politics. I mean, even from Egyptian pharaohs right on up to today, bloodlines have always been so important. It's a component you can't dismiss with royal families and all that. What were they really about? There's a lot of mythology about Alexander the Great being non having a non-human origin. Like, what are they talking about? So 
I mean, it's not super crazy speculation because it's not like our planet's elite for hundreds of years, if not more, haven't been obsessed with bloodlines and making sure they know where everyone came from and that kind of stuff. It's right there in the soup. Yeah, oh, it goes back forever. And of course, I mean, there's been a lot of speculation and sort of interesting literature about DNA and bloodline. And I mentioned, of course, the dragon bloodline and the origin of the dragon bloodline is extraterrestrial. And, you know, Whitley Streep had the hunger series and the vampires fed off our blood because they were extraterrestrials who needed our genetic material to stay incarnated in our reality. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of this stuff about certainly in the uh, science fictional realm and definitely in the parapolitical and speculative and alt media realm. I mean, it's all out there. But the thing that fascinates me is that very slyly and through insinuation, all this information seems to be in the science pages, you know, in the science websites. And, you know, it's like I'm reading all this stuff that was science fiction, and not only science fiction, but really weird sort of, you know, marginal science fiction not so long ago and is now mainstream news. You know, one of the things that I do talk about and I've talked about for a very long time is what I call X-Files reality. And now that you see, like, they're trying to weaponize bees to carry viruses, <laughs> it's like, wait, I think I saw that episode. You know, it's <laughs> like there's so many things showing up in the news, in the mainstream news, that seem to be straight out of X-Files episodes. Mm -hmm. So is it the chicken or the egg? I mean, what is inspiring what? I can't say for sure, but I can say that I do know for a fact that Chris Carter is extremely connected. I mean, he's very connected with a lot of people in the quote-unquote deep state. And Dean Hagland, who played one of the lone gunmen, has always said that he knew for a fact that CIA people were always hanging around the set and giving Chris Carter story ideas. And I actually had spoken to one former intelligence agent who said that he likes the X-Files, but he only likes the mythology or the colonization storyline because that's nonfiction. You know? So it's just like, whoa, okay, well, I guess that explains why things that were science fiction 20 years ago are now showing up in the New York Times in their science section. So, I mean, it's actually rather astonishing. But again, you know, if you go back to the sort of mental exercise, the thought experiments that I'm talking about, Gordon, who's a lot smarter than I'll ever be, you know, he definitely agrees with me that if you were going to posit a world that was being slowly, methodically, and relentlessly colonized by an external agency, by an extraterrestrial agency, so to speak, it wouldn't probably look much different than what everything we're seeing today. You know, I mean, there's definitely an effort to at least bring upon, like, the Gattaca eugenics reality. You know, people were bringing up eugenics quite a bit when this whole idea of the CRISPR babies, and of course they were twins, the CRISPR twins in China was hitting this, the, uh, the news, and then that guy goes missing, and then China bans the practice, and then, you know, we see these articles about how shoddy the science was, and so on and so forth. And my question was, all I can think of is the teaser, the opening of I Am Legend. You know, this woman's like, oh, hey, I cured cancer. And, you know, five years later or whatever, like the entire world is dead or zombies. You know, so it's like, okay, we're going to turn off the genome that makes people susceptible to AIDS and to these other sort of retroviruses and everything like that. Well, what repercussions does it have? It's like, 
every action has an opposite and equal reaction. So if you turn off that part of the immune system that makes us susceptible to something like AIDS, and I'm not even sure why AIDS would be an issue at this point in time, given you know the retrovials and whatnot, once that releases itself into the greater environment, how is that going to affect us? We hear about certain antibiotics create antibiotic resistance, right? Basically, what the antibiotics will do is that they'll kill off the weaker colonies of bacteria and encourage the growth. So the weaker colonies of bacteria will die off and the stronger colonies will basically eat their remains and grow ever stronger. So, you know, antibiotic resistance is a major thing today. And who would have anticipated that, you know, when antibiotics were basically a miracle cure? Because, you know, if you cut your finger on a rusty nail 60 or 70 years ago, you know, anytime between, you know, maybe like the early 20th century, whenever, before antibiotics were widely available, if you say you cut your finger on a rusty nail, that could be a death sentence. You know, you get a cold, and that could be a death sentence. You see what I'm saying? So it's like when antibiotics, like, you know, sky's the limit, you know, have a party, take as many as you want. But that creates an opposite and equal reaction. So once you start talking about gene editing, if you ask me anything that could unleash the eventual extinction of all at least mammalian life on Earth, I would say it's random idiots cutting and pasting genes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for real. I mean, that's, Agreed. I can't imagine anything more frightening, you know? That was kind of what I was going to ask you, is as we start to try to wrap this up, sometimes these patterns and stuff, they can be really interesting, and we can squint, and we can see some gears moving, even if we can't break down the whole machine itself. But I do think listeners can sometimes feel like, okay, well... How does this relate to my life? Or maybe it doesn't directly, but do you have any advice for people on how to live or how to fold in this information as they navigate? Well, the first thing to do is maintain your sense of humor. I think that's really important. Yes. And don't allow it to take over your life. Don't lock yourself in the room with a laptop and, <laughs> and a modem. Or stop doing it. You know, and just like <laughs> spend all your time like I have been known to do on occasion. Voice of experience, not a good idea. <laughs> Enjoy life. They always say, like, living well is the best revenge, so live well. You know, live well yeah. while you still can, you know. There's a hardcore band from my town. They had a song, We Just Want to Have Some Fun While We're Young Enough to Get Away With It. And it's just like, enjoy your life while you can get away with it. But, conversely, maybe for some people, the stuff isn't just like, I don't want to say entertainment, but it isn't just like this sort of marginal thing that you hear on like a podcast or read on a blog or something. You know, maybe there is some larger purpose at work. Maybe there's a larger purpose at work that you out there are listening to this. Maybe you're part of that. If this kind of thing sort of captures your eye, maybe there's a reason for that. You know what I'm saying? Maybe there's something behind that. Maybe, you know, you're being taken in a particular direction. I think that's up to the individual. That's nothing anybody else can answer for you, no matter how smart or wise or enlightened they are. They can't answer that for you. You have to determine that for yourself. But I think that people maintain a sense of humor, retain a sense of perspective, don't let it overwhelm your life. But at the same time, I have people all the time saying, I used to read your blog and 
then all this stuff sort of manifested itself in my own life. Okay, well, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe you should pay attention to that. You know, maybe you're being called for some reason into some role. I mean, who knows? I mean, this is the way history has always worked. You know, your calling, your vocation. Vocation means your calling, right? Right. So if it does bother you in a particular way and you start noticing synchronicity, you really start to take hold in your life, definitely pay attention to it. But always test it. Always assume that it's fictitious and wrong until you've overwhelmingly proven to yourself that it's otherwise. You know, don't take anything for granted. Approach it scientifically in the best sense of the word, you know, that I'm going to try and disprove this. I'm going to see if this is falsifiable, in, in other words. So don't just sort of surf it, you know, and just you sort of get this dopamine kick when these things start piling up. That surf can lead you to the rocks. I would recommend that test the spirits, you know. Gordon seems to believe that synchronicity is just a form of magic. Magic is an effect of the spirits, however you choose to define the spirits. All the great sages throughout history have said that the spirits need to be tested, right? Always test the spirits, you know, because maybe they're demons. Maybe the demons leading you to your destruction, you know. You have to learn how to distinguish that, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I think one of the reasons why it's so important to me to do the work I do, particularly with these new archetypes being introduced into sort of the mainstream, the problem is, is that when archetypes are new, they have a much greater power than archetypes that have been around for a long time. You know, it's, it's sort of like Mickey Mouse was new back in like the 20s and 30s. Winnie the Pooh was old hat by then. But then Bugs Bunny becomes the big thing, and then Winnie the Pooh isn't really that important. It's the same thing with archetypes. It's like archetypes sort of have their fashionable period and the period when they're really potent, and then they sort of give way to new archetypes. And I believe right now that we are in a phase of time where the old archetypes are giving way to new archetypes. And I think you need to understand what these archetypes are and why it's so important to me to see these archetypes at work in the world of events, you know, the world of reality, the world of causality, cause and effect, things happening. So you can determine what archetypes and what themes and memes and so on and so forth are real and not just a bunch of idiots in a conference from just trying to screw with everybody's heads. You know, I think that's really important. So that's one of the main reasons I'm doing the work I do. And I do the work I do basically for no money. I volunteer my time. I'm very punk rock about it. I think it's important. I think it's important that people understand that symbols are extraordinarily powerful. Symbols have their own power. Symbols are the basis of all magic, all magical systems. Magic is the basis of basically all human activity. So you see sort of this cascading effect, right? If people are using these symbols to manipulate you and to steer your emotions and to control your thoughts, you should at least understand what they are and where they come from. Isn't that almost kind of basic? Mm -hmm. To me, it seems basic. Because you can say, well, I'm just going to ignore it. Well, you can't ignore it. You can't ignore it because you're constantly being subjected to them. Like I said, it's inescapable. The rituals now are never-ending. You can't escape the stuff. You can't get away from it. So you really need to understand what it means and where it's coming from and where it intends to go because otherwise you're going to get swept up in it. You know, it's almost like you're building a boat, you know, when the tide starts to come in. And that's a really poor and lame and stupid analogy, but I think it's still apt. You need to be able to navigate these waters because you're in them, whether you want to be or not. And there's no getting out of them. I mean, you can go run off and live off the grid, eat what you kill, 
that's maybe the only way you can get away from them. But if you're in modern, postmodern, technological society, you cannot get away from them mm-hmm. at all. You have no choice. It doesn't matter what you choose to watch, what you choose to consume, where you choose to go. You know, it's like I said, with this whole thing of the siren. Okay, say, well, I'm not going to pay attention to the siren because I don't care. It has nothing to do with my life. Well, guess what? Every single fucking place you go is going to have that icon staring back at you. You cannot avoid it. You go into the supermarket, you're going to see it. You go into the convenience store, you're going to see it. You go into a mall, you're going to see it. You go into Walmart, you're going to see that icon all over the place. It's going to be in every downtown area, subways, airports, wherever you go, you're going to be confronted with that icon. Do you think that's an accident? Unintentional? Do you think there's no reasoning behind that? Do you think there's no intent behind that? If you think that, you really shouldn't be listening to this program. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I'm serious. I mean, I don't want to sound like harsh, but if you really believe there's no reason for that siren Siren of the Philosophers, which was very highly regarded by the medieval alchemists, by the way. If you really believe that there's no reason for that icon to be every single place you go anywhere in the world now. I mean, you go to Malaysia, you're going to see it. You go to Indonesia, you're going to see it. Japan, you know, anywhere you go, you're going to be confronted with that icon. If you think that's accidental, that's not for a reason, that there's not a purpose behind that, I literally have nothing to say to you because we're not living in the same reality. I agree. Cheers to all that, man. It seems like we are modern day Noah's on the conspiracy and just trying to stay afloat. And I find it all fascinating. We talked about so many things. It's probably time to bring the roller coaster back into the station. You are one of my favorite synchro mystics, even though that's got to be a short list. I mean, whatever that means. Uh, but I feel really lucky that you'd come back and let me interview you so many times and share all these insights with us. It's always a serious pleasure. Of course, secretsun.blogspot.com is where all this stuff goes down. You've got some great books out there, too. You've exited Facebook. Any information to give them? Twitter, maybe? Yeah, The Secret Sun Speaks on Twitter. I got off of Facebook, and it was one of the best decisions I've made in my adult life. I cannot recommend getting off Facebook highly enough for all of you out there. I know it's fun to keep track of your high school chums and see what your friends had for dinner last night and stuff like that. But Facebook is bad. (laughs) It's bad for you. It's bad for your mind. It's bad for your soul. And it's bad for your spirit. Get off of it. Mm. You know, there's two and a half hours of ranting or whatever. You know, (laughs) How do we use this in our lives? Well, if there's any takeaway that you want from this entire rant here, get off Facebook and stay off Facebook. It will make your life so much better. It will make you happier. Food will taste better. The grass will be greener. (laughs) Right. If you take away nothing else, at least take that away. But man, these are just troubling times in a strange reality i appreciate you spending some of your coma beauty rest time with us i hope you do wake up soon but until then man keep doing the true great work that you do thank you so much really enjoyed it you got it sweet winter solstice people oh man it was actually yesterday but you can't expect me to get much done on the shortest day of the year but we recorded this on a new moon released it on a full moon Dear Jesus, am I doing this right? 
I'm just messing around. Although I try and keep this sort of stuff in mind, I do use calendars that just have that extra information on them, easy to do, what the planets and the moon are up to. I'm trying to be better about at least considering that stuff. And if it has it on the calendar I use, that becomes good training wheels for me. And this was just a happy accident. Really, I think I just have this sort of drunken boxing approach to cosmic timing where I tend to just stumble into a win a lot of the time. But regardless, Chris Knowles, the Synchro Mystic State of the Union. It makes for a good end of the year overview type of show. And it's always a pleasure to talk about this weird world with him. Some added stuff did happen in the meantime while this was being edited. And I thought it was worth mentioning. I said something about this on the last Open Lines joint session, which went really well, by the way. If you're a Plus member, it's like two and a half hours of taking all sorts of calls from listeners, and it was a really good time. If you watched the archived video on the Plus site in the first 24 hours it was out, that was the version of the stream that YouTube saves for me. And it's really easy because it's already on the internet, so I just have to link it over on the Plus site. But when I watched a bit of it, it was quite choppy. So I replaced it with my local recording and it's a whole lot smoother. It just took a while to render it and upload it, but I'm just going to do it that way from now on. So anyway, I am watching good old Joseph Farrell doing his news and views just before the joint session. And he had mentioned the recent creation of a U.S. Space Command different from the Space Force. And one of the candidates to run it is this guy, General Mark Milley. Well, Trump nominated General Milley. Almost sounds like a guy who oversees cereal. But Trump nominated General Milley for a promotion from Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army to Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff overall. At a certain point, these titles just seem silly. But this promotion happened this month. Or this nomination for a promotion happened this month. And then just a couple of weeks later, they announced the Space Command plan, and his name is one of the ones tossed around to head it. And so what, right? Well, listen to this quote from a speech General Mills gave in 2016, and he's talking to ROTC recruits, and he says, You're going to have to be open-minded and adaptive to be able to deal with the complexity of the world that involves so many different dynamic elements that it's hard to describe in sentences. If the world of 1916 was complex, or the world of 1945 was complex, the world of 2016 is intensely complex. And I can tell you that from personal experience, and I know there's many others who can tell you that as well. And you will graduate and be in that world, and you're going to be leading the soldiers and the sailors, the airmen and the marines in that world. You'll be dealing with terrorists. You'll be dealing with hybrid armies. You'll be dealing with little green men. You're going to be dealing with tribes. You'll be dealing with national leaders and local leaders. You'll be dealing with politics and economics. And you'll be dealing with direct fire and indirect fire. And you're going to be dealing with it all. And it's all going to be dealt with simultaneously. And for that, you're going to have to be ready. He just told, again, 2016, a couple years ago, but he told ROTC recruits, people who are going to be giving their entire life over to the military, losing complete autonomy and maybe even 
their existence itself, that they would be dealing with hybrid armies and little green men. This isn't a time for joking around. He's warning them about what military service entails. I don't think I'm making more of this than there should be. I mean, hybrid armies, folks, from a high-ranking general in the president's inner circle. So Joseph Farrell brought this to my attention, and I also saw that 24 to 48 hours after the Space Command was announced, NASA announced that they had a huge security breach hacking situation just two weeks ago. Then we have that drill hole in the ISS, or at least the story of it. And I don't know, but to me, these are just some interesting things to throw in the boiling pot of crazy stuff that seems to be bubbling up to the highest level. For years, anything related to NASA or space was quite boring, and all they produced was pens that rode upside down and memory foam. But lately, even with things just like that 2007 UFO investigation project that the Pentagon disclosed, or this sabotage and the cyber attacks in the space agency space, it's pretty interesting to me, and it does seem like we have more pieces to analyze in the last two years than we did in the previous eight. So, I don't know what to say. Be awake. Be ready. You do not know the hour when the Zords are coming. I also think Chris has nailed it with both sides of the Great Seal encoding Lyra. The case is pretty well made to me, and Chris is an artist by day, so he understands this stuff pretty well. And in the case of the pyramid side of the Great Seal on the dollar bill, he mentioned that when you look at it from an artist's perspective, the angle of the 3D base isn't quite right. And much like how Michael Wan saw the 40 being backwards and mirrored on the famous John Smith map of Virginia that led him down a rabbit hole right there in plain sight, when something of this nature doesn't look right, it could very well be a code to something hidden there. It intentionally doesn't look right, so that then you can initiate yourself into going down the rabbit hole of what it's really trying to say. And I think the Great Seal is Lyra, because it's both sides. It is the pyramid and the shield. And as Chris says in the blog post where he shows the original design for the seal in 1776, yeah, it does have the eye and the capstone and does have a shield, but it is also quite different. And so that was proposed in 1776. Then, three years later, in 1979, the Ring Nebula was discovered, or at least it was announced that it was discovered in the constellation of Lyra. And three years after that, we have the Great Seal that everyone now knows and carries in their pocket, if you're lucky enough to have a dollar. But it makes me wonder if history is even fucking real, because 1779 seems like a long time ago to be discovering nebulas, not that we can't go back even further and find knowledge of the stars that we shouldn't have, but it's right smack dab in between 1776 and 1782. And I don't even think this got mentioned in the episode, it was kind of a whirlwind, but there was a proposed mission to go check out Amuamua and what was that called? Project Lyra. Where did this thing supposedly come from? Well, to quote the sketchy New York Times, it was first noticed zooming out of the constellation Lyra. Pretty strange, right? And we did not even tie in many of the Liz Frazier Song of the Siren details, but if you follow the Secret Sun blog, then you see that these threads are all over this stuff too. It's a bit overly complicated for a podcast discussion that was already so 
packed that it was well over two hours and is still about two and a half hours after editing. So we left that layer out of it for the most part, but let me drop this on you. So that Harvard paper was suggesting that a Muamua could be, quote, a dislodged solar sail from an alien probe. So a sail, like a sailboat. And what was the name of the album Tim Buckley put the Song of the Siren on in 1970? Star Sailor. Also, the Cheops thing. It's been a long time since I heard the Great Pyramid referenced as the Pyramid of Cheops, but that's absolutely a true thing. So very strange acronym for a space telescope. It really does seem like they're trying to make the pieces fit. I don't think Cheops just happened to be what the name was. Also, again, like Lucifer, which is what the Vatican's telescope is called. And that's a seven-letter acronym. Why can't you just call it the Vatican's Space Telescope? Does it really need a seven-letter acronym, which basically means a seven word long name no it doesn't unless you want to name it lucifer but man chris likes to joke on the blog that he's got to be in a coma and i understand why it's a crazy level of connections that just shouldn't exist and if we have all these references to space and the constellations hidden in something like government seals and the dollar bill and we have all these references in our space agency and telescopes relating to ancient egypt the bible Space missions named after Egyptian and Greek gods. It's like a connection that goes both ways. And to me, it means, I guess, A, somehow factions of the elite are descended from something that came from the Lyra corner of the sky in the same way that when we go somewhere new, we plant a flag. This is like leaving your stamp, but a little bit hidden from the public. So I could see that. Or B, it could be like a cargo cult type of thing, something Gordon and Chris have talked about before. But when a plane flies over an Amazonian tribe and drops supplies, there has been a phenomenon where the people try to call them back by making models of planes and signals that can be seen from the air. It could be something like that, trying to get the attention of something out in that area because you've seen something come from there before. Or C, which is pretty much just like A and B plus magic. It's some sort of highly organized and very long-standing ritual that's trying to get the attention of this corner of the sky to either show them that they're still here or that they have control and they want to go home. Who knows? And I'm sorry, Flat Earthers, who are clearly going to comment about how this is just another THC shill episode trying to convince you that space is real. But this is what the connections look like. If you want to keep this all in a flat earth paradigm, you can. The constellation of Lyra forms a rectangle. What else is a rectangle? A door. Maybe Lyra is the door in the dome because the celestial sphere is always moving. Only if you time it all right can you burst through to the higher plane of the angels. In fact, scratch everything that I've said. This is basically flat earth confirmation now that I think about it. But then you can tie in how it relates to surveillance and hybrids and DNA. And that's what the abduction motif was all about through the 80s and 90s. And the 70s and the 60s. But then you have a few decades after those peak abduction years. We have all this being way more mainstream and out in the open. With CRISPR and smartphones and data surveillance. 
I would not be so full of myself as to think that I will ever solve this puzzle completely, but I really love looking at the pieces. And just like a really hard actual puzzle, just to get a chunk of five pieces that fit together can be very exciting, even if the full picture is still completely unsolvable. But try to break anyone into this sort of stuff, and you'll see why guys like Sir Francis Bacon only leave breadcrumbs, because this just isn't for everyone. I was having a good time at the bar the other day, and I made some comment about astrological cycles, and someone was like, what do you mean? You think astrology is real? How is that possible? And what can you say? Except, you know what, man? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Because I'm not going to be able to break it all down in a crowded bar in between commercial breaks of some stupid football game you're all glued to. And I don't even want to. I'm satisfied with my own knowledge. I'm definitely satisfied having a large group of audience members slash friends that do feel the same way. I don't need my meat space friends to give a shit anymore. Plus, sometimes it's like describing a drug trip to someone who's never left sober reality or trying to explain purple to a blind guy. I don't even have the language to do it justice sometimes. There's just something to it. And with that said, big thanks to Chris for always bringing the heat. If you only heard the first hour in the Plus Show, we talked about things like speculations on where we could see examples of hybrids and clones in our culture, the Lion Air crash and AI, messing with the timelines, bringing back the old ones, Annihilation and the Shimmer, and of course, the new Celine Dion gender-neutral and deeply esoteric clothing line for babies, which is all I want for Christmas, and of course, for you to treat yourself to the second half of a show that you clearly enjoy, $8, it's less than 10 it's less than 9 it's less than the cost to park in most downtown areas on a weekend. Less than a cocktail in said downtown areas. And it's more valuable than both, yada yada yada. I hope secretsun.blogspot.com is on your daily or weekly reading list. I hope that you can shoot Chris a thank you tweet just so he knows he's not wasting his time with me. And I'll see you in just a couple of days with a medical show aimed at the ladies to counterbalance the one we just did for the guys. And then we will end the year with a classic guest return and a little something I'm putting together called the Higher Side Holiday Special. It is a plus thing. Do not groan at me. I am glad a lot of people like the free show, but I owe my whole life to the plus people. And I want to throw another log on the thank you fire. And I hope you enjoy the holidays. Say hi to Jesus for me. I'm out of here. Your move, space sorcerers, code concealers, and elite liaisons to the librarians? Your fucking move. Woke up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was dark outside It was light coming down from the sky be those strangers that come every night whose saucer shaped light put people up tight leave blue green footprints that 
glow in the dark I hope they get home you please take me along? I won't do anything wrong. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along the high side? Woke up this morning, I was feeling quite weird. I had Lights in my beard, my toothpaste was smeared. I opened my window, they'd written my name. Said, So long, we'll see you again. Hey, Mr. Spaceman, won't you please? Thank you.